And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? are to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, 
and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Beathiar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. The word of the Lord. So this fall and winter, we're in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We are making our way through it somewhat rapidly, because I think that's how it's written. It's written to be read this way. And so we're coming to a section... Uh, which describes the opposition that Jesus faces as he is teaching and healing. You remember that last week we talked about the authority of Jesus. Jesus established his authority as this new king bringing the kingdom of God. Well, now there is pushback. And it's surprising, maybe not, that the pushback comes from those who are supposed to get it. It's the religious, the moral, the people who are supposed to understand what he's saying, they're supposed to know the scriptures, and yet that's the group that pushes back on his teaching and on his healings. So this morning, we'll consider our text, and there are five controversies here. So we're actually going to work through this text. There's five controversies, and I won't be able to, to spend much time on any one of them, but hopefully you will get a picture of what the opposition was. And I'm hoping that one or two of them will resonate with you in a particular way. So don't worry about trying to remember all five. Uh, And if you want to go back to it later, you're welcome to. The manuscript of the sermon will be online, and you can listen to it again if you'd like. But I would encourage you to listen to what the Lord may have for you this morning. Which one resonates with you? Where do you feel that your heart is opposing the gospel in a particular way? Now, we will see that each of these controversies presents the gospel as a threat to something and also presents the gospel as a gift of something. So as you, if you are taking notes, which you don't have to, but if you are, each controversy will have a threat and a gift, a threat to something and a gift of something. 
So let's just work through it. I think it'll be helpful if you keep your Bibles open and follow along. So look at Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. That's the first controversy. Now we have a paralytic brought to Jesus. There's a man who can't move, he can't walk. He cannot himself get to Jesus, so his friends actually try to bring him to the Lord. But the crowds are so vast at this point, and it's so crowded in the house that they can't get him to Jesus, so they decide to lower him through the roof. Now, their faith is great. They are convinced that if they get him to Jesus, Jesus can help him. So they take the roof apart, they lower him to Jesus, and Jesus responds in a way that nobody expected. Jesus looks at the man, and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. He reaches beyond the immediate need. He reaches beyond what the man expects to the greater need. He's saying there may be a fracture in your life that is separating you from health, but there's a greater fracture here. There's a fracture between you and the Lord that needs to be healed, and your sin is right in the middle of it. So the Lord is actually reaching beyond the physical into the spiritual, and he says your sins are forgiven. Now, of course, that that creates a stir. At this point, there's Pharisees and scribes who are there, and they rightly, I think rightly, accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Because anybody who can say your sins are forgiven is making themselves equal to God. So there's two options. It's either blasphemy or this is God. There's no other option here. Either this person has taken the place of God or he is God because only God can forgive sins. Now, Jesus responds to this and he says, okay, well, anyone can pretend to forgive sins. If it's blasphemy, that means I'm pretending. It's easy for anybody to say your sins are forgiven. He says, but to prove that I have authority over sin, I now say to this man, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man gets up. So Jesus establishes his spiritual authority by performing a physical miracle. And the people who are are, are looking at what he's doing are amazed. And they glorify God. There is a spontaneous worship that's happening here. Because they see not only a miracle but they see someone claiming to be God who can forgive sins. Now, why is there opposition to this? Well, because what Jesus is doing is threatening something, something very important. There's a threat to our theology here. There's a threat to the Pharisees' understanding of God, to the idea of who God is. If Jesus only healed this man in the name of God, there would have been no problem. That fits in who they think God is. God sends prophets, God sends healers, and in the name of God, they can do all sorts of things. But Jesus forgave sins as God. Well, that that doesn't fit. Jesus doesn't look like God. God is not supposed to have a body. God is not supposed to be here. God is not supposed to do these things. And yet, here he is doing it. And that challenges, that threatens the theology of the Pharisees. Now, Jesus says, look at verse 10 with me. 
Jesus says about himself, which causes even more of a problem for the Pharisees. Jesus says about himself, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Pharisees are Bible people. The scribes are Bible people. They know exactly what Jesus is referring to. And Jesus is reaching into the, the, the prophet Daniel in, in the seventh chapter of Daniel. And he's quoting, he's alluding to this great vision that Daniel had. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, to God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus says, I am he. I am that son of man. I am this, this king that is human, son of man, and yet divine, whose kingdom will never end. I am here, and I have the authority to, not just to heal, but to forgive sins. And that statement, and that miracle, and what Jesus is doing here, blows up the whole theological framework for the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, this is not only applicable to them. It is applicable to anyone who is dealing with the real God. Because to deal with God on his own terms, to see him as he reveals himself, to build our theology on the reality of who he is, it requires leaving our own conceptions of God behind. Now imagine a, a theological shift that any Pharisee, any scribe had to undergo if they believed in Jesus, if they converted to Jesus. Imagine what they have had to rethink. Now all of a sudden their whole theological system is, is upended. Well, anybody who comes to Jesus experiences no less of a dramatic shift than they did. We all have to adapt our idea of who God is when we actually meet God. Listen to C.S. Lewis, who underwent his own conversion and his own experience of, of God's involvement in his life and realized that I don't know God, I don't know what to think of him because he keeps adjusting my ideas of him as he acts in my life. Lewis says, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He's the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. And most are offended by the iconoclasm. And blessed are those who are not. Lewis says that the very fact that our idea of God keeps changing proves his presence. Because when you're dealing with the real God, we constantly have to adjust to him. He doesn't come to fit into our idea of what he should be and how he should act. But we are adjusting our idea of him 
to the reality of who he is. So whenever the gospel is proclaimed, there is a threat, there is a challenge to understanding of who God is, just like it was in this passage when Jesus shows up and all of a sudden all these ideas of whom the Messiah should be, who God is, are challenged. So whenever Jesus shows up in our lives, we have to adjust our understanding of him to who he actually is. But with this threat to our theology comes the gift of worship. Now notice the response of people in in verse 12. They were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And, And it is the sense of wonder, the sense of surprise that actually moves them to worship God. You know, part of what we're dealing with in our world today, in our culture today, is we're no longer surprised by almost anything. We have largely lost that sense of wonder and awe, and that is essential to our relationship with God. It is essential. And so we constantly have to be surprised by God We are constantly coming into his presence and saying, I I didn't know you were like this. And when he does something, you say, I didn't expect you to do this. I don't understand why you would do this. And this could be negative or positive. But he is constantly shattering our ideas of him. And we respond to it not by running away from him, but actually to running towards him in wonder and worship. Because we say, well, I've never, I've never seen anything like this. I've never known a God like this, a God who can surprise me, a God who can reveal himself in a way that I do not expect. That's the first controversy, the threat to our theology, but then the gift of wonder and worship. The second controversy is in the following verses 13 through 17 of chapter 2. Now, Jesus calls Levi, also known as Matthew, same person, who's a tax collector, and he calls him to follow him, to be one of his disciples, to be in his circle of friends. And then he attends a party at Matthew's house. Now, as most of you know, tax collectors at that time, perhaps even as in our time as well, are not the most liked people, right? Now, at this time in particular, these Jewish men would collaborate with Rome to raise money for Rome and also to enrich themselves. So these are traitors. These are people who have betrayed their people. They, they are despised. They're not welcome anywhere. In any, in any decent Jewish home, they would not be welcome. These were people who were excluded from the Jewish religious life. They were outsiders, and they were clearly outsiders. I mean, if you would make a list, who's in, who's out, they would absolutely be out, along with the lepers, along with the unclean sinners, along with all those who would not be welcome at the temple. The tax collectors will be on that list. So Jesus not only calls Matthew to follow him, but he also goes to his house and is involved in a party that Matthew throws for him. Now, what kind of people could Matthew invite to his house? Well, it's other tax collectors, right? That's his friends. It's other sinners. It's other undesirables. It's other people who are excluded from the life of the Jewish community. And Jesus is there, and he's with them, and he's reclining at table 
which means he is friendly with them. He's, he's talking to them. Jesus is not keeping his distance from them. He's actually right there with them. No respectable rabbi, nobody who would hope to have a, any sort of following in Israel would even come close to these people. And Jesus eats with them as a friend. Of course, the scribes and the Pharisees are very critical of this. Again, they are surprised by Jesus. They're surprised that Jesus would do that. And Jesus responds in verse 17, and he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I mean, once again, Jesus turns the whole religious system upside down. And his gospel comes as a threat to our righteousness as a threat to our righteousness, and we define our righteousness against other people. We define our righteousness by affiliation and by belonging and by contrast with others. Jesus comes and he says, I, I have not come for the insiders, I've come for the outsiders. I've not come to, to those people who are supposed to get my gospel. I've come to those people who wish this gospel were true. They hope against all hope that this may be true. And so he goes to them, to the sick, to the sinners. Now it turns out, according to Jesus' gospel, turns out that our attempts at self-improvement, our achievement of superior status, our goodness set in contrast to other people who are not trying as hard as we are, turns out... God is not impressed with any of it. I mean, this is quite a statement. Jesus says, all that you've been doing, all this work you're putting in to keep yourself clean, to keep yourself separate from the sinners, to make sure that your life doesn't intersect with people who are not good people. Turns out none of that really matters. God is not only not impressed with it, in fact, it seems to turn him off. It seems to push them further away. The kingdom is not for the insiders, but those who have been rejected by the insiders. Does it make you uncomfortable? It should. It should make all of us uncomfortable because all of us are instinctively trying to get on the inside. Now, the inside may be different for, for different people, but all of us are trying to be included. All of us are trying to be welcomed into some room, right? Into some place. Somewhere where we are accepted and saying, yes, you are one of us. And that's when we know, I really am okay. I'm not sick. Not a sinner. I'm fine. Because look at all these people who accept me. Who approve of me. Who affirm who I am. Now, we, we live at a time where, I, I, don't, I don't know, I'm not, I haven't studied all the periods of world history, okay? But I've studied enough to know that this is an unusual time, because during this time, we seem to define ourselves and define our righteousness based on our affiliation. Politically, it is no longer important to affirm an idea and argue a concept and say this is a better policy. It's much more important to show that you belong with these people or that you don't belong with those people. We can change our views, but we don't change our affiliation. 
It's if I am accepted by my tribe, then I am okay. That's the current pursuit of righteousness. This is what we do. In our culture today, this is how we approve of ourselves and try to find a way to say, I am okay. Yes, my life may be a mess, but at least I belong with these people. I'm on the inside of this. I'm in that room. I'm welcome at this gathering. Now Jesus comes and he says, none of that matters. It doesn't matter if you think you're on the inside. For God, everybody's an outsider. He's trying to bring you in, but he can only bring you in if you think you're not in. If you think you're already in, there's no hope for you. Unless you believe you're sick, you're not going to go to a doctor. And Jesus says, here I am. I am a doctor. I can help sick people. I cannot help people who think they're healthy. I can help sinners, but I cannot help people who think they're righteous. And especially those who think they're righteous because they don't want to be with these other people who are sick. Do you remember a story that Jesus told about a tax collector and a Pharisee? This is from Luke 18. Jesus says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified, declared righteous, accepted by God. But the one who, hum rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee who did everything right, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you know what surprises me about this parable the most? Is my own response. And I would venture to say that most of us respond to this parable exactly this way. We read it and we say, praise God, I am not like that Pharisee right? I am humble. I pray for God's mercy. I don't even lift my eyes to heaven. Because we want to be on the inside. We, we want to be able to say that, that I, I'm supposed to be accepted by God. Look at me. Of course I belong with him. But Jesus says it's the people who don't think they belong that God draws to himself. It's the outsiders. It's people who don't belong in the temple. Like, like this tax collector says, I'm not even supposed to be here. But Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, because that's the only thing that can draw me in. I have nothing to offer. Unlike the Pharisee who says he comes with a list. He comes to, this is why I should be on the inside. This is why, Lord, you should accept me. He doesn't think he's sick. He doesn't think he's a sinner. But the default thinking for all of us is that I am righteous. I am healthy. And the Lord has to break through that. And that's why the gospel is a threat to that. It's a threat to our righteousness. 
If you hear the gospel and you say, well, that just affirms what I've been thinking, you're not hearing the gospel. It has to come as a threat, but then it gives you a gift. What's the gift here? The gift is grace. The gift is grace. It threatens your righteousness, or we can say self-righteousness, or our attempts at righteousness, but it actually offers you righteousness by grace. Grace is only relevant, it's only desirable to the desperate outsiders, like the tax collectors of Jesus' day. The gospel is for the people who can't pull themselves together. You know, the gospel is, is, is for people who, who understand that there is nothing I can do. There's no group that I can find that would affirm of me and then God would agree with them. I'm desperate. Only by grace, only by His mercy, can God welcome me. This is the threat of the gospel to our righteousness and the gift of grace. Now, the third controversy presents another threat and another gift. Look at verses 18 through 22. Now, this controversy is about fasting, specifically, but more broadly, it is about religious observance. The Pharisees and their disciples and John the Baptist and his disciples notice that Jesus' followers do not observe a pattern of fasting, meaning they're not regularly fasting. They don't have Tuesday and Friday fast. They don't have specific scheduled fasts. Now, everybody else did. Pharisees, John's disciples, they were serious about their religion after all. But not Jesus' disciples. They, they, they seem to be doing a lot of feasting, and by the way, in some not so reputable houses. And so there's a natural question. Why don't you guys fast? Why don't you take your religion seriously? Why don't you do things that we all knew, know we're supposed to do? Then Jesus responds in verses 19 and 20. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. He's saying, why should my disciples express by fasting their desire to be with me when I am here? Why should they humble themselves with fasting to, to show how much they want to please me when I am here? Why should they express by fasting how much they want to know me if I'm here and they can talk to me? When I am gone, Jesus says, it would make sense for them to fast, but not now. Jesus threatens our religion and offers the gift of relationship. He threatens our religion and he offers the gift of relationship. Now, Jesus is not saying that fasting has no place in our lives. I think fasting actually is one of the forgotten spiritual disciplines. But now it is because Jesus is not here with us physically. In eternity, when his kingdom comes, we won't be fasting. Why would we fast? There's no point to fasting. We would feast with him, of course. He'll be there. We'll feast with him. But while we wait, yes, there are times to fast. Jesus' whole point is that our religion, our religious observance, has to be shaped by the relationship we have with him. So we have to start with the relationship, and then we have to work out what religious observance makes sense. 
He's showing that the purpose of fasting is to know him. Just like he would show that the purpose of the Sabbath is rest in the next passage. And then Jesus gives us these two illustrations. And they both mean the same thing. You can't put new wine in old wineskins, or you, you cannot sew a patch from new cloth, unshrunk cloth, to an old garment, because the new and the old cannot mix together. Now, Jesus' point is that you can't just take a little bit of the gospel and then work that into your religion. He's saying you can't just adjust your religion a little bit based on what Jesus is saying. Like, let's, I really like this idea that Jesus is saying, so I'm going to add that to how I see God. He's saying you, you cannot do that. Because if you put something new into the old, it'll, it'll tear it up. It will blow it up. It can't work like that. The kingdom of God is coming in, and it's a new thing. It's a new thing. The gospel, if properly understood, it will threaten everything, and it will change everything in your life. It's, supposed, it's how it's supposed to work. It can't just be added to something or combined with the old system. Now, we don't think about it. We don't think like that when it comes to religion. We talk about religion as part of our lives, and in some ways it is, right? You're not always doing religious things, and there are some things that some days or sometimes when you are doing religious things. And so conventional wisdom is, well, just leave religion where it belongs in that particular spot in your life. And, and don't talk about religion, because that causes a lot of controversy, it causes a lot of arguments, so just, just kind of try to ignore it. Now, if religion is like that, then, of course, we, we can ignore it or we can replace it if we don't like it. We can change religions, right? But Jesus says, if you see the gospel, if you see my kingdom as only a religion, and then you try to add it to your life, and you try to put it in that compartment that you can ignore or switch out or leave where it is, if you do that, it won't work. The gospel has to take over your whole life because the gospel ultimately is about this new relationship with God through Christ. And there's no part of your life that that relationship is not going to affect. This is what Jesus is saying. You want to put me into a religious system. You just want me to tell you whether you should fast or you shouldn't fast and if you fast, how many times a week? And he says, but, but that's not what it's about. It's about knowing me, and then your whole life, including your religion, is going to be shaped by this new relationship. Now, in biblical terms, we're talking about the new covenant. Jesus came to bring a new covenant to his people. And this is how the prophet Jeremiah describes it in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Amen. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to establish this new relationship with God where we, we can call him our God and he can call us his people. And we're not just a people who belong to the religion of that God. We're not just the people who do these things according to our religion. 
But we are the people who are in a relationship with God, and our whole religion is shaped by that. Now, if you get your picture of Jesus from the Bible, and this is what we're trying to do this fall and winter, we're trying to, to see Jesus as he is, as he himself presents himself to us. If you get your picture of Jesus from the Bible, you cannot see Christianity as just a religion. It is a religion built around a relationship with God. To be a Christian is to be in a relationship with God. You cannot be a Christian if you're not in a relationship with Him because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and in the empty tomb. True conversion is an encounter with Jesus as a person. True conversion is your life being changed by Jesus directly and then you, you, you take everything else in your life and then you conform that to that. So you take your politics, you take your religion, you, you take your leisure, you take your career, all of that is now submitted to the relationship with Jesus. Which is why often it looks different for different people. Jesus may want me to do something he doesn't want you to do and vice versa. And that's okay because the center is the relationship. Uh, Simone Weil was a, a 20th century French uh, intellectual, and she underwent a dramatic conversion. This is not a person who was supposed to be interested in Christ or much less convert to Christ. And this is what happened to her. She says, In my arguments about the insolubility of the problem of God, I had never foreseen the possibility of that of a real contact, person to person, here below, between a human being and God. I had heard tell of things of this kind, but I never believed in them. In the sudden possession of me by Christ, neither my senses nor my imagination had any part. I only felt in the midst of my suffering the presence of a love. Like that which one can read in the smile on a beloved face. And then she became a Christian. Why? Well, because Jesus came to her. Because she met Jesus. And she says, I know him as I know a beloved's face. And I can tell that he's smiling because I know him. That's Christianity. And then religion is built around that. Okay, the fourth controversy. And here we, we find a threat and a gift as well. Mark 2, 23 through 28. And this is about keeping the Sabbath. Now you know that the Jews were not allowed to work on the Sabbath. This is one of the commandments. The Pharisees in their zeal to obey the law of God came up with all sorts of other rules to protect the Sabbath to make sure no work is done on the Sabbath, so there's not even a question, there's not even a controversy whether something is work or it's not. And so they had all these rules, for example, that you could only walk a certain number of yards before it became work. So you couldn't travel far, you just only had to do so far, and that was okay, but then beyond that was work. And of course, you couldn't harvest anything, that's work. That's working. That's harvesting. And so you have Jesus and his disciples. They're walking, probably more than they were supposed to, plucking grain 
of the field, and they're eating it. And the Pharisees are saying, you're working. You're breaking the Sabbath. Now, you need to understand that they're not actually breaking any biblical commandments. But they are breaking the commandments that the Pharisees came up with to protect the biblical commandments. And so, there's a controversy again. The Pharisees are accusing Jesus and his disciples that they're breaking the Sabbath, they're breaking God's law, and Jesus responds to the Pharisees by reminding them of a really weird story from 1 Samuel 21. I'm not sure I completely understand what happened there. But I think I get the point that Jesus is making. Now, in that story, 1 Samuel 21, David, before he becomes king, he's on the run from Saul, the king that's trying to kill him. He comes to this, this town. It's a priestly town. He comes and he asks for help. And the priests who don't have any food for him actually take holy bread. They take the bread of the presence from the temple. That's, it's consecrated. It's supposed to be only for priests. And they allow David and his men to eat this special bread to sustain them on their journey as they're fleeing the danger of King Saul's persecution. So why is Jesus telling this story? I think he's doing that to show that the Sabbath law, just like any law, is meant to address human needs, and it's meant to, to create a situation where those needs are fulfilled rather than creating more needs. He says the Sabbath were made, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's basically saying the law is good. It's meant to, to, to give life to you. It's meant to help you. And look at David. He did something that he wasn't supposed to do, and it seems like it's okay. Now, I don't know if Jesus is saying it was right or wrong, but, but he's using that analogy to show us that God is helping our needs. He's fulfilling filling our needs. And that's what the law is supposed to do. That's what the Sabbath is supposed to do. The Sabbath is given to us to address our need for rest, for restoration. And it's not supposed to create more needs like hunger. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, Jesus says. And so in this way, the gospel threatens our view of morality. Or maybe, to put it differently, it threatens our view of moral performance. Now, what are the Pharisee try, Pharisees trying to do? They're trying to do things right. They're actually trying to meet God's expectations. They're trying to be good people. They're trying to say, not only will I not break the law that God gave us, I'm not even going to come close to breaking that law. So let's fence it. Let's make sure that we know exactly where that line is and we're not anywhere close to it because we're, we're good people. But in their view of morality... Their joy was restricted. While Jesus says that God's commandments are given to expand our joy. The Sabbath is given to ensure that we rest, that we worship, that we live in the right rhythms of life. It's not meant to oppress, but to liberate. But the Pharisaic morality, this, this attempt at moral performance actually brought more restrictions and it created more needs and it created more fractures in their lives than what it was supposed to do. So what is the gift? If it threatens our morality, what gift does the gospel offer to us? And the gift is rest. 
the gift is rest. Jesus actually comes as the Lord of the Sabbath. He comes as the true Sabbath for his followers. Jesus says, I am Lord even over the Sabbath. Even over the Sabbath. He's saying, you thought maybe I was Lord over other sins. Or maybe I was Lord over the physical. Maybe I was Lord over religious. He's saying, I am Lord even of your rest. Because even only I can give you the kind of rest that you long for. Jesus says, if you trust me, I can teach you to live in harmony with God's reality. If you follow me, you will see that the law of God is good and that it actually brings life. You will not obey the law in hope of deserving God's approval. You will obey because you trust in God's goodness. Now, do you see how this is a threat to our moral performance? Because we want to say, I don't even plug the grain off the field on the Sabbath. I don't even go a mile more on the Sabbath. And God says, you don't need to obey me to deserve my love. You need to obey me because these are good things for you. You need to trust me that I am a good lawgiver. Are you tired of moral performance? Have you created all sorts of rules in your life? Because I have. I, I can tell you some. Where, where you just fence it so close so that you actually sustain that moral achievement. You tired of that? How disciplined do you really need to be to please God? How much do you have to achieve so God would be pleased with us? How much do you need to give up? How much do we need to sacrifice for God to be happy with us? For God to love us, to accept us? Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 11, the famous proclamation that Jesus gives us. He says, come to me. Come to me. He doesn't say obey the law. He says, come to me. The way it changes is when we come to him. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me all who see God's law as a burden, who see these moral imperatives as barriers, who are crushed by the expectations of God. Come to me and I will give you rest, Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I mean, this is an amazing promise. Jesus says, you've been, you've been working. You have this yoke. You have this burden. And you're trying. And you're trying. And he says, but if you come to me, I will give you a different kind of yoke. I will give you a different kind of burden. And you will find the deepest rest that you can imagine. Rest for your souls. So though the gospel threatens our moral performance, it gives us rest. And finally, the last controversy. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now, notice that the Pharisees are here, and they want to trap Jesus. They've already been through all these controversies. They know that this is a big threat to them and to their life and their system. So they're just looking for opportunities. They're looking for Jesus to do something obviously wrong on the Sabbath. 
something that could rally the people, that can get the authorities involved, that finally we can prove this is not a real prophet, this is not somebody who came from God, because obviously if you come from God, you don't break God's commandments. So they're looking to trap him. And a man comes, man with a withered hand, he's, he, he needs help. This is somebody who comes to the synagogue on a Sabbath for help. And the Pharisees say, you cannot touch him. This is not the right day to do any healing, because why? Well, healing is work, right? And Sabbath is to restrict our joy. It's to, it's to oppress us and liberate, and not liberate us. And so Jesus says, is it what the Sabbath is for? And by the way, Jesus is angry. He's angry at the stubborn heart. He's angry that the whole law of God has been twisted. And now the Sabbath that should be an expression of life has become an expression of death. He's angry that the power of the leaders is used not to give life, not to liberate, not to heal, but to oppress and to restrict. And so he's angry. And what does he do? He heals the man. He heals him because he says, Sabbath is for the purpose of doing good and not harm. It's to save lives. It's not to kill. He's saying we need to use our power for life. And so obviously the gospel then comes as a threat to our power, as a threat to the power of the Pharisees. Now, there's great irony here in, in, in verse 6. The Pharisees, in response to that threat, get together with the Herodians against Jesus. They combine their powers, right? They're saying, you're powerful, we're powerful, let's pull it together so we can kill Jesus. Now, these two groups of people would never be together. The Pharisees are about God's law. The Pharisees are about the, the purity of God's temple, of purity of the worship of God. They hate Romans because these pagans come in and they change everything. They don't let them worship the way they want to. Who are the Herodians? These are the people who support Rome. They don't care about Jewish customs. They want power of Rome, and they want to be part of that. And then you have these two groups of people coming together, combining their powers. Why? Because of the threat they see from Jesus. They're not going to let go of their power. And the gospel always does that. The gospel, when properly understood, challenges our power. It challenges what we do with our influence. But what is the gift here? Well, the gift, quite simply, is life itself. Just as Jesus heals this man in the synagogue, so he brings life to us. As we give up our power, he, through his power, brings life to us. Five controversies. The first one challenges our theology, but it promises worship. The second one challenges our righteousness, but it promises grace. The third one challenges our religion, but it promises relationship. The fourth one challenges our morality, but it promises rest. And the last one challenges our power, and it promises life. The question is, how do we respond to that? Because plenty of people just look at the threats and they run or they oppose it. But others see those threats as vehicles for gifts. 
And they're saying, good, my power is threatened. Good, my religion is reshaped. Good, my morality has been exposed. It's good because God will give me what I actually need. And so as we come to the table, we're going to take communion in just a minute. As you come, think about who this Jesus is. Think about what he came to actually do. Think about him reaching beyond suffering. Think about him reaching beyond self-righteousness. Think about him reaching beyond religion. Think about him reaching beyond all these things that we have actually built our lives on and going deeper and giving us something greater. Think about the Son of Man who can forgive sins, not just to heal your body, but to heal your soul, to heal your relationship with God. Think about this Jesus who comes not for those who think they're righteous, but for those who know they are sinners. He's not swayed by our reputation. He's not swayed by our tribe. He goes after those who are outside, the sick, the sinners, the tax collectors. Think about his grace. Think about the ultimate insider. There's, there's nobody else who has been more on the inside than Jesus, experiencing the perfect love of the Trinity, possessing everything that exists in complete control, with complete acceptance. And yet he leaves that place of being on the inside to become an ultimate outsider. What happened on the cross? Jesus is excluded. He's excluded from everything good. Even his father rejects him. Now, why did Jesus do that? He did it for us. He did it for us to bring us into that relationship with God. He did it for us to extend grace to us. He did it to show that this new covenant is not just a patch on your old garment. It's not just a splash of new wine. But the whole thing is going to be new. Think of him as the Lord of the Sabbath who offers that real deep rest for your souls. He's not just telling you not to work, but he's telling you you can get rest from him. The irony of this passage is not only that the Herodians and the Pharisees are getting together to kill Jesus, but that they're doing that on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, they decide to use the Sabbath, to use this law to kill and not to save life, to harm and not to heal. And Jesus is right at the focal point of that. So Jesus had to lose his life so he can give life to us. Unless you see the threat of the gospel, you cannot receive the gift of the gospel.